0: Ephesians four thirty one through five two. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This text is so rich, as I mentioned earlier, that any of the phrases almost could be chosen and spoken about for an hour. So we have to be selective and I've chosen to focus our thoughts around the little commandment in verse 32, Be kind to one another. And I have pondered how the rest of the things in the text fit together with this command and have come up with five things about Christian kindness that I want to talk about with you. Let me mention what the five things are, and then we'll take them one at a time and uh, think about them together. First, there is the extent of Christian kindness. Second, we will look at the depth of Christian kindness. Third, we'll look at the pattern of Christian kindness. Fourth, the instrument of Christian kindness. And then finally, the source of Christian kindness. And my prayer as we look at these five dimensions of Christian kindness is that God would honor his word by causing it to bear fruit in your lives and my life in Christian kindness and I feel inclined to just ask the Lord to do that right now with you. Let's just pray and and ask Him to do that. Lord, we are in great need. Because the words of men produce nothing eternal or of any spiritual significance. Only the words of God do that. Here I stand, helpless, therefore, unless you would be pleased to do the miracle of making my voice an instrument of your grace to reach the hearts of your people or perhaps some who are not yet your people. And make us your own and make us like our Savior So we ask for that miracle and that work of grace in Jesus' great and holy name. Amen. Well, let's start with the extent of the kindness, extent of Christian kindness. How much kindness should a Christian show? That's the question. Part of the answer is given in verse 31. Christian kindness should be so extensive that it replaces, it says, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, slander with all malice. See the words all at the beginning at the end, all bitterness at the beginning, all malice at the end. So this is the old corrupt self that Peter referred to. This is what's to be stripped off. Allah verse 22. And kindness is the new garment, the new self that's to be put on. But the question arises whether or not, in fact, all wrath and anger are, in fact, to be put off. Bitterness, yes. Outbreaks of clamoring belligerence, yes. Rumor-mongering and evil talking behind people's backs, yes. All malice, yes. All these, no exceptions, put them away, yes. But what about anger? You see, we've been on this before, right? Two weeks ago, we spent the whole Sunday evening trying to sort this out. Because in verse 26, just five verses earlier, it says, be angry and don't sin. And in James 1.19, it says, be slow to anger. It doesn't say, don't ever get angry, just be slow to get there. Jesus, Mark 3, verse 5, looked around in the temple on the Pharisees. It says, grieved and angry at their hardness of heart. So we should ask the question, for example, is Jesus always kind to the scribes and the Pharisees? When he says things like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. Is that kindness talking? Or when he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you cross sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Kindness talking. Or when he weaves a whip out of cords and drives the money changers out of the temple, knocking over their tables in his anger so that their money scatters on the floor. Is he acting in kindness? If you walked up to Jesus after he had said and done these things and said, Jesus, that was unkind of you to talk that way or to do that to the money changers. What would he say? How would he respond? I can think of two possible responses. One, he might have said something like this. Sometimes a heart of love and a passion for the truth don't express themselves in the form of kindness. Or he might have said this. There is a sort of kindness that is hard as nails and tough as leather. Now which do you think he would have said? Would he have said, kindness is big enough to embrace woes and whips? Or would he have said, kindness is one form of righteousness, but not always the best form? I think he would have said the latter. I'll tell you why. I've looked over all the uses of the word kindness in the New Testament. I think we will honor the tenderness of the word kindness more if we simply admit Jesus was not being kind to the Pharisees and to the money changers. He was being severe. And then this key text in Romans eleven twenty two becomes operative. It says, behold, the kindness and the severity of God. They're not the same. Sometimes God is, it says, kindness towards those who remain in his kindness and severity towards those who are fallen. So there is a difference. And sometimes... God opts for kindness and sometimes not. So with Jesus, my conclusion is kindness is not an absolute virtue. And so when I come back to Ephesians now and I read in verse 26, be angry, don't sin. And then I drop down five verses later when Paul surely hasn't forgotten what he said. And he says, get rid of all anger. I conclude that he means this very thing, namely, get rid of all inner bitterness, all inner malice, get rid of all their eruptions in slander and brawling. But when it comes to moral indignation, when you look out on a a life or church and you see Christ's commandments not being obeyed, when you see the glory of God being cried down or diminished, when you see the holiness of the church being jeopardized, then a choice is before you. Will you give vent to your indignation in severity? Say in church discipline. Or will you mortify? Your anger, concluding there's too much of self in it this time. I must replace it with kindness. Under the Holy Spirit, this is a call for intense and radical self-examination. Under the scrutiny of Holy Scripture and in the light of the knowledge of your own deceptive heart. So my conclusion is the extent of Christian kindness is imprecise. It is probably narrower and wider than you think. Second, the depth of Christian kindness. Here the point is very simple. Christian kindness is not the outward reformation of manners. It's the inward renovation of the heart. Verse 32. Be kind to one another, tender hearted. This beautiful word in in Greek. I think tender hearted is a good translation. Christian kindness is tender hearted. What does that mean? It means that on your insides, the Greek says bowels, on your insides, you're easily touched. If you get a burn or a bruise on your hand, my son Benjamin has this massive bruise on his elbow because skateboards are such wicked, horrible sport. (laughs) He's just killing himself on this skateboard. He's got this big bruise. It's, if you just touch it, it hurts. Why? Well, I can touch him elsewhere and no hurt. That's the way it, it's supposed to be inside. Just a slight touch moves a person. You're easily moved, easily empathetic with other people. That's what tender-heartedness means. And I really believe this connection between a wound is is deeper than we think. Unless you've been wounded, you probably won't. Be very tender hearted. We'll see more of why that is as we move along. But the depth of Christian kindness is a a deep renovation of the heart that involves being easily touched, easily moved by the hurts of others, the burdens of others, pain in the world, injustice, and so on. Now, if you stop and think about it, it's a remarkable thing that the apostle commands this. Be calm, kind, and tender-hearted. And what if you're not tender-hearted? What if you feel hard-hearted this morning? What are you going to do in response to that commandment? Tender-heartedness is not a decision. It's a character trait. How do you become new so that you can be tender-hearted? And not just outwardly spruce up your manners. That's not Christian kindness. Well, we'll see the answer to that before we're done. But let's move on to number three. We'll come to the answer of how at the end when we talk about the source. The pattern of Christian kindness is number three. And in the text, we see two patterns of Christian kindness. First, the forgiveness of God and second, the love of Christ. The first is in verse 32. Do you see it? Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And here's the pattern. As God in Christ forgave you. So when kindness calls for forgiveness, the pattern becomes the forgiveness of God in Christ towards me. Second, chapter 5, verse 2. Walk in love. And here's the pattern. As Christ loved us and gave himself up. For us, So when love expresses itself in kindness, the pattern is to be the love of Christ giving himself up for us. So let's take these one at a time and ask this question. What can I learn about my forgiveness, first of all, from the fact that I've been forgiven by God or the way that I've been forgiven by God? I see four things, at least, in the forgiveness of God that will temper, modify, control, give a pattern to my own forgiveness. Number one, God's forgiveness takes sin seriously. It names it. That's sin. And then it covers it. God forgives what he hates. There is no flimsy, namby-pamby saying, oh, it didn't count. Oh, there was no real hurt. Oh, I wasn't really wrong. It names it wrong and then covers it. I called a man on the phone a week and a half ago to apologize for something I'd said and ask for forgiveness. said to him, and... uh He didn't say, oh, I I didn't hear that. Or, oh, it, it didn't matter. He didn't say that. He said very earnestly and very warmly, forgiven and forgotten. He said it in such a way that I really felt in my heart, it's over. It's gone. It's clear. So the first thing we learn from the forgiveness of God is he takes sin seriously. He calls sin sin and he hates it and he forgives what he hates. Second, we learn that God's forgiveness reckons with a real settling of accounts. Every sin that has ever been committed will be punished, executed. No sins are swept under the rug in the universe. Not one. This is very important for our own forgiveness. It means that when I have an opportunity to forgive a wrong that I've been done, it's the holiness of God that will be my strength in that moment. And enable me to carry through. Because you know one of the great obstacles to forgiveness is because our moral character cries out, It isn't right to let that go. It isn't right to let her keep getting away with that. It isn't right to let him keep doing that. It isn't right to act as if this hasn't happened. That's just an injustice in the universe for me to just forgive it. There's something in us that isn't all bad, that wants justice done. And my point here is justice is always done. Every sin is executed in the universe. When someone wrongs you, there are two possibilities. Either that person will in the end trust Christ. In which case... That wrong that he committed against you was executed on the cross, right? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The wrong that was done you by a Christian was laid on Jesus and executed once for all. No double jeopardy. Let it go. The other possibility is... That he will not trust Christ. And then that wrong against you will be punished eternally in hell. So what's left for you to do? Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, on the cross or in hell. Forgive, let it go. Justice will be done. Every account will be settled. That's the second thing I learned from the forgiveness of God. It reckons with a real settling of accounts. Third, God's forgiveness is very costly. It cost him his son. Which simply means that our forgiveness is very often going to be costly. It will cost us the sweet taste of revenge. It's got to go. It will cost us the pleasures of savoring a grudge. It's got to go. It will cost us the pride of superiority riding over this person, holding it over them. It's got to go. It's costly to the human ego... To be a humble forgiver of wrongs. The fourth thing I learned from the forgiveness of God toward me is that it's real. It's real. It's not sham. When my sins are forgiven, they're gone. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed my transgressions from me. Psalm 103 verse 12. It's gone. So watch out. You fall short of the divine pattern when you say you're forgiving somebody and then you tuck it away back here in the back of your mind for a possible later need for a little touche if they get one up on you. That's not the way God forgives. When he forgives, it's gone. It's gone. Gone, gone, gone. It's a good song, isn't it? You can make a song out of that. The second pattern is the love of Jesus. Verse 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, what can we learn about our kindness from the fact that Jesus loved us enough to give himself up for us. And, of course, this is why I said we could talk all day on these texts. But let me just mention three things that I have been moved by in in meditation on this verse. Number one, the love of Christ for me is undeserved. And therefore, I should never insist that people deserve my kindness. There is not a person in this room... Who qualifies for the love of Jesus. It's a very grave theological error. To say that you have qualified for the love of Jesus. You don't. Nobody qualifies for the love of Jesus. That's why it's amazing. That's why we sing about it. Because it comes to us anyway. Now. When you turn around and consider candidates for your love, what qualifications are you going to require? So the first thing we learn from this is that our love should be indiscriminate, lavish. Second, the love of Christ for me and for you is a holy love. What I mean by that is it pursues My holiness and your holiness. Why did Jesus give himself up on the cross in love to pursue your holiness? It says so right across the page in my Bible. Ephesians five, verse twenty five. It says Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. That means make her holy. And present her to himself in glory that she might be holy and without blemish. What is the love of Christ after in its dying? Your holiness. So what should your love be after as you love other people? Not their approval. Not their worldly happiness. Not the avoidance of conflict. Their holiness. That's all. And there are many people today who are driven by an emotional and sentimental concept of love that doesn't operate with that idea at all. That love is the pursuit at the cost of your own life, if necessary, of another person's holiness. Not their short term happiness, their eternal Holy happiness. And the third thing I see in the love of Christ toward me is that it was sacrificial and self-denying. And of course, this is what we saw when we said the love of God is costly. But it's good to say it again because the great and hard thing about kindness is that it's so hard to do when it costs. I will never forget. The kindness shown to me in 1973 at the end of the year, the beginning of 74, by Frau Dora Gopult, the wife of my doctor father, Professor Leonard Gopult in Munich, Germany. He was running, he was 62 years old, the prime of his career, in the midst of his great magnum opus, the New Testament theology, and he was running for a subway train, and all of a sudden his heart exploded. And he died. They weren't expecting it at all. It was a totally unexpected and massive cardiac arrest. And he died a couple days before Christmas. Frau Dora Goppelt was devastated. He had one daughter in college, and she was just devastated. Totally out of the blue. All their plans shattered. And in that moment when she could hardly have the strength to reach out for one more day, she reached out to me. This foreign student who wondered whether his three years of labor were gone because his doctor father was gone. And reassured me and cared about me in those days. That's what I mean when I say kindness can be costly. It is. But that's the pattern of Christ. And that's the miracle of grace. And that leads us to our fourth point, namely the instrument of Christian kindness. We've seen the extent, the depth and the pattern of kindness. Now, the instrument. What do I mean? I mean this. What is it that we take in hand, or that we employ, or that we exert in order to become tender-hearted people? Here we are now at the question of how. How do you become a tender-hearted person if you're not tender-hearted? What's the instrument by which I can achieve this? There's a hint in verse 31 in the form of the verb. If you have a new international version, you won't be able to see this. But if you have a New American or a Revised Standard or a King James, it's it's here. The form of the verb is passive. It says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander literally be taken, be taken away from you. Now, that's a hint about the instrument of our cleansing. It isn't all in ourselves, is it? We know it's not all in ourselves. Am I able to take bitterness by myself and cleanse my heart of it or malice just on my own, pull myself up by my own bootstraps and become a new person, sanctify myself? No, we know that's not possible. That's why now and then Paul feels constrained to say it in a, a let it happen to you, let it be done to you. And who, who is this person or this power that is going to do it to you? Where is this kindness going to come from? And you know the answer, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. That's where it comes from. It comes from the Spirit. That's the person meant in this passive verb here. Let the Spirit cleanse you. Let God work on you. Let God go after you and cleanse you and get bitterness out of you so that you don't erupt in slander and in, and in clamoring and brawling. But that's really not the question I'm asking. I'm asking, what do I do? What am I supposed to do? So that I can appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit so that it becomes a reality in my life and my sanctification progresses and the bitterness goes and kindness and tenderness comes. And the answer to that question is faith. Faith is what I must do. And the reason I know it's faith is because in Galatians chapter three, verses two and three, Paul says, did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? How did you get the Spirit? By works or by faith? And then he adds, are you now so foolish that you having begun with the Spirit are being completed by the flesh. And we ought to stand back and say, no, no, I am not trying to get my bitterness out of me by the flesh. I am not trying to become kind by the flesh. I am relying upon the Holy Spirit. I'm looking away from myself to the Spirit. And then we say, how are you doing that? By what means are you appropriating the power of the Holy Spirit? How is he becoming an instrument in your life for your cleansing and your kindness? And the answer is, I'm trusting I'm believing. I have faith. And that leads to the last question. In what? This is number five. The source of Christian kindness. In what are you believing? In what must you have faith? In what must you trust? And the text tells us three things very plainly. We must believe in order to be kind to one another in order to see the holy spirit cleansing and tenderizing our hearts number 1 we must believe that christ died in our place verse 2 christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is an incredible and horrible sentence. You see what the, that word fragrant means? The slaughter of the son smells good to the father. That's horrible. That's awesome. That's devastating. There is something in that reality, in that truth, that blasts a human being. If your heart would ever open to the thought that the death of Jesus, the knife plunge into the chest of Isaac, smelled good to Abraham, smells good to our father, it's fragrant. This is beyond comprehension. This is devastating that the cleansing of our hearts took place in such a transaction. This breaks the heart of a Christian and makes him tender. Secondly, we must believe that God has forgiven all our sins. Verse 32. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. In order to be kind, you must be forgiven. In order to be kind, you must believe That all your sins are gone. All the ones you did in the past. The ones you will do today. All the ones that you will do until Jesus comes are forgiven. In Christ. Believe that. And you will be made tender. Nothing breaks the heart of a Christian like this thought. Every smack in the face of God, that's what a sin is. Every smack in the face of God is forgiven by God at the cost of his son. Nothing breaks the heart of a Christian more than that. It breaks the Christian's heart to know he is forgiven like that. And out of that brokenness, there flows a balm of healing for other people. A soothing and sweet and tender and forgiving balm. And thirdly, we must believe that we are loved by God. Verse 1 of verse 5. Be imitators of God. And I just love this next phrase. Maybe because I have four boys and would like to live up to it. Be imitators of God. As loved, I even think the word beloved waters it down. As loved children. Children imitate a loving father. Child of God this morning, you are loved by God. Child of God, you are loved by God this morning. You must believe that. If you don't believe that, you won't be kind. But if you believe these things, a miracle will happen in your heart. It's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of God. It's Christian kindness. May God give us faith and may God make us kind. Let's just stand for closing prayer.